You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Vine today. Hey guys. Well, if you're new here today, um, one of the things that we are really excited about as a church is, is um, church planting and planting among neighbors and nations. And so today we have the opportunity um, to celebrate. And there's kind of two facets to this where we get to celebrate what God is doing and we also get to uh, grieve a little bit because we know that um, our relationships change, but, but it's, it's really, really good. So today's a challenging day. It's a beautiful day. Um, we get to formally acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Justin and Laurel as we commission them, pray for them, send them to full-time work in Ecuador. And so, man, this, this is our heartbeat as a church like, just the fact that we're standing up here right now is like, praise God, this is our heartbeat as a church, right? Um, we don't define success by how many people are in the seats every Sunday morning, but more so how many we can send. How can we be generous in light of God's generosity towards us in the gospel? Um, so we do this this morning with joy, right? We do this with joy. It's also a bit of uh, what I would say hopeful sadness, Right? Um, we don't see each other as often when we send, um, and that's hard, but we believe God by faith that he's going to provide for us and for you guys. Um, and so Justin Laurel, you guys have meant so much to this church, and we want to just publicly thank you for what you have meant to our church. Justin, you have been an amazing mentor and elder and friend and teacher um, to so many. You've left a mark on this church that we would not have otherwise. So please hear that. That's, that's real. Um, and we know, this is what we're excited about, we know that that will continue in your new location, right? And Laurel, you've, you've done the same thing. You've been a, a city group leader, a counselor, a mentor, a friend, a, a staff member with me um, and James and, and Houston and, and, and others. And, and it's been a joy to have you on our staff these years. It really has. And uh, you, too, have left a mark on this church that we would not have otherwise. That's beautiful. And we want to thank you for that. And we know that that's going to continue in a new place. And so we're really thankful for that. Don't cry. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Gosh. Um, so we want to commission you now. Let's bring your family up. Um, and elders can come up now. Uh, and we're going to pray for... Uh, Justin and Laurel formally. And so, let's see, does Jackie have that mic? Well, yeah, so let's, let's put a hand on uh, Justin and Laurel or a hand on someone who has a hand on Justin and Laurel. And we're going to um, pray for them. We're going to have a couple different elders pray. So it looks like David and John are going to pray this morning. And let's do that now. God, we give you thanks that you are a God of all nations, that you have um, sent your gospel of salvation and life in Jesus out into all the earth. And we are recipients of it here, um, of your grace. Um, and God, it's such a joy thus to send out Justin and Laurel with the goal of seeing uh, your church prosper in Ecuador. 
And so, God, we, we thank you for their service here, for the love um, that we have for one another. Um, God, but we, we, even as we are sad for them to go, we rejoice at why they go. Um, and God, we pray that you would prepare for them good works um, in Ecuador, that um, you would prepare relationships for them. Um, God, that you would cause the work of their hands to prosper as they seek to build up your church um, in Ecuador. Um, God, I pray that your spirit would be an encouragement for them. And God, I pray that we as a church would um, would remember them often, would come alongside them, and would remain uh, close to them even as they are far away. Father, we praise you for making Justin and Laurel. Thank you for the blessing they've been in, in my life and the blessing they've been to the vine and the blessing they are uh, to our entire community. And um, God, thank you for putting on their heart a love for the people of Ecuador. And God, we know your spirit will be with them as we send them. And I just pray by your spirit that they prosper at everything they do, whether it's logistics of moving and, and getting settled there, whether it's language learning, whether it's sharing the gospel with people that need to hear it. God, just we know you will be with them and comfort them and um, let them be confident and your, uh, your spirit goes with them. And whatever they face, whether it's success or setbacks, uh, I just pray that they can always be content in Christ and our Lord and, and always be grounded, their identity always be grounded in, in Jesus and what he has done for them and, and for all of us. God, I'm excited to see how we can partner with them so that more people in Ecuador will come to know you and to believe you, to love you, and to glorify you. Amen. Amen. Well, why don't we, uh, why don't we just give these guys a round of applause, and you guys can be seated. Yeah, thank you. Okay, yes, where's the mic at? We're going to call an audible here. Laura was going to say something. Well, we, we just wanted to say thank you. Um, you have walked with us um, in community and supported us, and we just wanted to thank you for that. Zach asked us multiple times if we wanted to say something, and we said no, no, <laughs> no. But as I was thinking about that, I thought, um, what would I like to say if I could say something? And... Um, First, thank you, and we love you all, but this is the passage that I wanted to read over you all, mm. and it's Ephesians 3, and this is our prayer for you as you continue on in community here in Madison. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him 
Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 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 Thank you guys so much. Yeah. So to, right now is like the formal, and we'll celebrate the informal. So all of you, um, if you're on Slack, you've seen that we were going to have a big picnic, party, dinner, uh, reception, sort of, like say goodbye to Justin Laurel uh, today. And all the information is on Slack, on the important channel. Um, in addition, if, if you're interested in how you can support them, either prayerfully, relationally, or financially, um, just talk to them. They would love to hear from you along those lines and, and hear what their needs are. All right, so the emotional part is uh, beyond us now. Um, We've got to do a little housekeeping before we dive into God's Word, okay? So this is for, uh, just for our members of the Vine Church. And over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to do a covenant, a membership covenant renewal, Okay. And we're going to ask all the current members to review the covenant of fellowship and then just simply sign up again with your name uh, if that's something that you're still excited about and you want to continue to be a member of this church. Uh, For those of you who aren't members, this isn't for you. Just know that there'll be a membership class coming very soon. Stay tuned for that. And then at that time, you'll have the opportunity to uh, sign the covenant of fellowship as we teach through it. We did this back in 2017, and it was great. So many of you were not here in 2017, okay? So that's why we're doing it again. Three reasons why we do this on a semi-regular basis. Number one, we're forgetful people. All throughout the Bible, the assumption is we are forgetful. Uh, Old Testament is remember. God says, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt over and over again in the Old Testament. Uh, New Testament, it's Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me, Lord's Supper. We have these ceremonies of remembrance because God knows we're forgetful people. And same is with our church membership. It's like, why are we going to church again? What's this all about? You know, it's easy for us just to make church into tradition, just something we do on Sunday morning. You know, motives can be all over the place. And a covenant of fellowship just reminds us this is who we are. This is the target we're shooting at. We don't want to forget, right? It helps align us so that we can be strong. Second, it's, it's a really good way for our elders, uh, the leaders of our, of our church, pastors, paid and unpaid, to know exactly who is it are we called to shepherd. Because the Bible says clearly in 1 Peter 5, it says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here it is. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So elders are called to shepherd people. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the question then is this. Who am I formally supposed to be an example to? Right? Who are we formally shepherding? Elders are called to do this, but it's very important for elders to have clarity. Like, who is the church, right? Who's formally said, I want to be on board with this. I want to do it together with this group of people. So a covenant renewal just helps us with this specificity, specificity because as elders and pastors, we take that really seriously. Like, we want to do this verse. 
but we have to know who those people are officially, right? And then finally, um, let me just say this. For, for those of you that are rereading this and praying, thinking, discussing it, and you feel like maybe just in good conscience you can't sign it, and we want to say that's okay. That's okay. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you. Like, please reach out to one of us as elders, uh, if not all of us. Slack is a great way to do that. We would just plead with you not to leave, like this church or any church in the future, don't ever leave a church silently. Don't ever leave a church silently. It usually robs everyone of the chance to grow, if that's the case. So if you, if you can't re-sign a good conscience, just, just again, hear me say that's okay. It's okay. Like for, for some of you, this might be a great time just to take the off-ramp. And that's okay. Here's the thing. We don't believe that we're the only game in town, Right? Like, the kingdom of God is not divine church. That's a really good thing, right? Right? So we're not trying to pad our stats, right? But we do want to have people here that feel like they, they read the covenant fellowship, and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. And if, and if not, we'll even help you find another church where it's like, yeah, like, I'm on board with this, and, and we're, we're like, great. This church believes the Bible and Jesus and, and, and mission and gospel and community and all these things, and and, and we're not the, the only church in town, and so we can celebrate you in that way. And we'll even help you in that way, okay? So there's the why. Let me just give you real quick on the how. Um, two options, digital option and what I call now the analog option, okay? And so the digital option you'll see in the back. There's QR codes on, on the little tables there in the back as you come in. And the, real way, the, the easiest way is for us to like, keep track of stuff is digital. And so if you could just scan that QR code with your camera app, read, fill it out if you're on board, and submit it, that would really help us. And then there's also a table in front of the kitchen if you uh, don't have a smartphone or would prefer not to use a smartphone, and just fill that out, read it, fill it out, and put it in the, in the box there. And so ideally, I'm going to be reminding you about this uh, every week, um, and ideally we'll have this done by the end of September. And so that's just our goal. So, okay. Covenant fellowship renewal, housekeeping over. All right. If you have a Bible, would you please open it up to Luke chapter 18? If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back. Oh, one other thing I forgot. We're giving away these books, gentle and lowly. You'll see them in the back. Please take one. Uh, You can take one, give to a friend. We really believe um, what this what this book teaches, and so we commend it to you. Love to have you read it. It's a gift. Uh, even if you're just a visitor, take one, a couple copies. All right, so we are in our vision series. We do this every year. Again, because we're forgetful people, and a vision series every single year helps remind us, what's the gospel community mission all about? Like, why do we focus on that? Why do we believe that that's kind of like a, a summary of discipleship that the Bible presents? Why should we do that? And so we just teach through it with our Bibles open to remind ourselves, oh, this is the gospel, and this is how it affects us. This is community, and this is how it affects us. This is mission, and this is how it affects us. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the essence of the gospel and how it affects us. And it's going to start in uh, Luke 18, 
verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. So here's a question I want you to consider, I want you to think about. It's one of the most important questions you could ever ask yourself. How do you define salvation? And what are you trusting in to save you? What's the definition of salvation in your mind? And then what are you trusting in to save you? So for Christians, hopefully that's an easy answer. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, that might be just kind of a weird question, right? Like, I'm not even aware that I'm trusting in anything. I'm not even sure what you mean by salvation. Well, the fundamental conviction that I hope all of us would be persuaded of is that everyone has a definition of salvation, and everyone's trusting in something to meet that definition, to save them, right? Like, for example, if one way to think about it is what's the big problem in your life? Everybody probably has one, something they focus on. If the big problem in my life is singleness, then what would salvation be? Salvation would be maybe marriage. The big problem in my life is, is loneliness, then salvation in my life might be relationships. If the big problem in my life is, man, like, I just want to advance in my career and I feel like I hit my head on this ceiling as I'm trying to climb the corporate ladder, if that's the big problem in my life, then salvation would be promotion, right? If the big problem in our lives is the wrong political leaders, then what would salvation be? We've got to get the right, the right people in office. So what is it? Like, if you think about it like that, I think if we're all honest, Christian or non-Christian, everybody has a big problem in your life that you can identify. And there's probably going to be some type of message of salvation that you're striving to attain or see attained that's going to bring satisfaction. So whatever it is or however it is that you seek to answer those questions, that's what you're trusting in. That's what you're trusting in. Everyone does it. Everyone runs after something. Even if you're the laziest person in the world, comfort and ease then is what you're running after. It's what you're seeking for ultimate fulfillment. You're trusting in something to save you. Well, today we're going to see Jesus tell a very, very poignant story that immediately got the attention of all his hearers because it was a bit shocking and controversial. And this parable is the heart of the gospel. Oftentimes when I share the gospel with somebody that's a non-Christian, this is the first place I go just to be like, if you want to to boil down Christianity, this is it. If you want to boil down what it means to know the problem in this world and how to solve it, this is it. And this is what we're going to see today. You're going to hear me repeat this because I want to just burn it into our brains. Human beings are made right with God by humbling themselves before God and casting themselves upon his mercy expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? So let's see that phrase. Let me say it again. Human beings are made right with God by humbling themselves before God and casting themselves upon his mercy expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So let's take a look. Look at verse 9 of Luke 18. 
he told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves. There it is. What are you trusting in? He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So remember, the question, what's the question? What are you trusting in to save you? That's not a new question. That's been around a long time. Jesus knows that question's been around a long time. That's why he's asking it. That's why he's framing it. What are you you trusting in? Well, he's identified some people that trust in themselves. He's telling this parable to some who did what? Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, trusting in yourself for your righteousness was very true 2,000 years ago when Jesus first said this. It's also very true today. You can see it all over our culture. One poignant example that I always think of is oftentimes when a celebrity or someone very famous, like a politician, when they pass away, their funeral is on sometimes worldwide television, worldwide streaming on the Internet. And almost everyone, believer, unbeliever, speaks of the person now, like maybe the phrase is, now that that person has passed away, they're looking down on us from above. You might hear that phrase. Or we know that this person is in a better place. We say that oftentimes in our culture, right? But culturally speaking, why do we believe this? Whether you're a Christian or not, most people are willing to talk that way. Well, the majority answer almost is always this. Well, obviously that person was a good person. And because they were a good person, they'll be looking down from above or they're in a better place, right? Translation, that person was good enough, right? That person was good enough. That person was, to use the Bible word here, righteous enough, right? Their righteousness ultimately saved them. Their goodness saved them. Their personal integrity saved them. And that's, again, look at verse 9. People trusting in themselves that they were righteous. That's what Jesus is talking about. So what does that cultural example show us? And what does this verse 9 show us? It shows us that almost all of us believe this. And Jesus wants to confront that this morning. Jesus wants to look at that narrative that's everywhere in our culture and say, can I rattle your cage a little bit? Can I stir you up a little bit? Can I step on some toes of your cultural assumptions a little bit? Like, just being a good person based on your own standard that you've created for yourself somewhat arbitrarily, right, that I believe for whatever reason, of course God will honor that, and, and allow me to spend eternity with him? Like, do we believe that? Maybe just a little bit? Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell? Is that the message of Christianity? Like, even when I say that, don't we all kind of intuitively go, yeah, that makes sense, right? Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell? Is that the message of Christianity? Have we, have we believed that? 
Because it seems to make sense, right? It's the cultural air that we breathe. It's the water we swim in. It seems kind of intuitive, right? Well, Jesus has something to say about that this morning to our culture, to our hearts. And in contrast to salvation through behavior, this is what we see, that human beings are made right with God by humbling themselves before God and casting themselves upon his mercy expressed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So let's dive into his, his story, his picture, his parable. Verse 10, two men, all right, so imagine it, there's two men, and they went up to the temple. These are, in our, in our language, these are church-going guys, okay? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So let's set the context here, right? Two men, Pharisee. So what's a Pharisee? If you're new to your Bible, so glad you're here. Pharisee, think religious elite. Think the guy who has it all together. All the externals are put together, right? There's no obvious external sins that you could point to. This is like the classic good person. Followed all the rules, always showed up to church on time. He's got it together, religiously speaking, okay? That's what a Pharisee was in Jesus' day in some sense. Now, what about a tax collector? Because Jesus is forming an intentional, dramatic, controversial contrast. The tax collector, a lot we could say, but just know this. He's the scum of the earth. He's the classic, unrighteous loser. Okay? Like, just, this will help you climb into the world of this text, because that's what we have to do. I want you to, I want you to feel this in a way. So think of maybe that political leader that, whose convictions you detest. You got someone? That's how the first audience would have heard tax collector, like that, the person, like that one you're thinking of now. And they both show up at church. And they both, what does it say in verse 10? They went to the temple to pray. Okay? So we got some diversity at the prayer meeting. Okay? Now let's see what happens. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So right right away, the original audience, they got their their attention. Their ears are perked. All right, what's going to happen? Well, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. What's amazing as I'm just reading this again right now is like all those things probably were true. But think about what's happening here. Even if those things are 100% true. Let me give you an example. So about six years ago, my dad passed away from a cancer called multiple myeloma. And he received really, really good medical care at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester 
And his oncologist was this world-renowned oncologist, award-winning, amazing. I mean, he was just brilliant. He was kind. He was gentle. I'm just on the ball every step of the way. And obviously, when you have that kind of a resume, you have to become an expert in seeing the signs of cancer in other people, right? That's why people want to come see you as their oncologist. So he was hyper aware of what to look for, and he knew that my dad was really, really sick. And multiple times he had to warn my dad, you can't go on that trip. You're too sick. I can see it. I'm an expert in this form of cancer. If you go on that trip overseas, you might die over there. So cancel the, pl- cancel the, cancel the plane tickets. He knew what to look for. He was an expert in seeing cancer in other people. Now imagine if this world-renowned oncologist had the same kind of cancer in his own body, and he didn't realize it. And eventually it was too late, and he died. Wouldn't that be weird? Like, how bizarre would that be? To be hyper-aware of cancer in other people, but you fail to see it in yourself. Like, that just doesn't make sense, right? Like, that's a head-scratcher. Maybe even incomprehensible. That's what we see here in this text. You feel that? A person who's hyper-aware of the cancer of sin in others, but fails to see it in himself, and he prays like it. Everybody else's sin but his own. And Jesus is going to show us that that's an eternal tragedy. That's an eternal tragedy. Look look at his prayer. Look at it again. Look at verse 11. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, this is what's so bizarre. I mean, Jesus is such a master storyteller, if you're willing to listen with ears to hear. He's praying to God, but then where does his gaze fixate? Right next to him, this dude next to me, tax collector, and fixating on myself. So I should be looking to the Lord but I'd rather look at this guy, who's a loser, and look at myself, who's a winner, in my estimation. And so basically, I'm not even praying. I'm just telling God. Look at it. Is this a prayer? I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Preach that, sister. He's, he's, he's just thanking God. He's just thanking God for his arrogance, ultimately. Look at it. Five times he says, I. What's the emphasis? What's the repeated word? I, I, I. He addresses God, isn't looking to God. Ultimately, he thanks God for himself. Isn't that wild? Listing his accomplishments. So how would we sum this up? What's Jesus trying to show? He's trying to show that this guy has a perceived sense of moral superiority based on his external performance. 
Okay? <clears throat> now, as we analyze this with Bibles open, here's the great irony. I would say the, the, the very, very dangerous irony of what can happen in the room right now. Many of us are thinking, man, thank God I don't pray like this Pharisee, right? So be, be careful. Be careful. I have, to, I have to check my own heart constantly. Maybe we shouldn't be too quick to assume superiority over this guy. I mean, we do this to each other all the time, right? Oftentimes, rarely, we never say it out loud, but it's like, in your mind, you're thinking, wow, like, this guy clearly doesn't go to the gym. I'm so glad I go to the gym, right? Man, like, their parenting choices are clearly a little sketchy. Look at my kids. They're obviously pretty reckless with their money, or not, you know, maybe they're just too stingy. Praise God that I'm dealing with my money perfectly. Like, what are those thoughts that we have that we never say out loud, but pass through our brain without even thinking of it? It's just a reaction. We all do this. The the Pharisee is not the only one. Jesus has a word for us today, too. Madison 2021, Vine Church. See, the reality is these kind of thoughts for this guy in the text and for us is a is a heart and a mind that has forgotten the truth of the gospel. Have you forgotten it academically or intellectually? No, but experientially we have. See, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to war with that way of thinking. Like think about the ratio. How much, do, how much time do I spend focusing on the sin of others versus my own sin? I mean, that's convicting for me when I frame it that way. I think the Spirit asks us to be honest this morning. In terms of the amount of time taken up in your thought life, how much of it is out there in terms of sin is the problem out there versus sin is a problem in here? Those idiots who make us wear masks, how dare they? Those idiots who don't want us to wear masks, how dare they? Or whatever it is, right? I mean, that's the, that's the cultural example we live in right now. But what is it? Like, it's all out there. The problem is out there. It's the government. It's my boss. It's my spouse. It's my roommates. It's my neighbor's. And that's not to say that there aren't real problems out there, but what's the proportion? What's the ratio? What's consuming our thoughts? Human beings are made right with God by humbling themselves before God and casting themselves upon his mercy expressed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So look at verse 13. Here's the contrast. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, so let's look at the text and imagine it in your mind. Remember the posture of these two men. Back in verse 11, we see the Pharisee, what's he doing? He's standing. See that in verse 11? He's standing. He's an island of righteousness all to himself. Doesn't need anyone because he's got it all together. He's trusting in himself. We've learned that already. But contrast that from this religious political heretic. <clears throat> the tax collector. He's, what is he doing? Look at verse 13. What, what's his posture? He's standing far off. He doesn't presume closeness with God or others. Look at another contrast. The Pharisee has his eyes lifted up to see everyone around him. He's looking around, comparing himself. But what does the tax collector do? He won't even raise his glance beyond his own feet. It would not lift up his eyes. Feel that contrast? The Pharisee's looking around at everybody else. He's like, I, I can't look around at everybody else because I'm just consumed with my own sin. And he expresses his remorse by thumping his own chest. His prayer is much shorter. You notice that? Beautifully short. Pr prayers of repentance don't have to be long. Especially if they're in public. And he addresses God and he says two things. Look at it in the text. They're so vital for us to embrace if we say we believe the gospel and want to have our lives reflect that. Trusting and treasuring Jesus. What, what, what do we see? Number one, he says, I'm a sinner, and God, I'm asking you for mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So I, I recognize that God is there. He exists. He listens. He hears. I recognize I've got a problem. The problem is my sin. And what's the solution? Just cast myself on your mercy, Lord. Just cast myself on your mercy. I can't clean myself up. I can never clean myself up enough to be righteous in your sight. I'm just simply going to look to you, God, and ask for the gift of mercy, the gift of righteousness. He knows he can't earn it. He can't produce it on its own. He can't buy it. He can't negotiate with anyone to get it. He can't manufacture it. He can't manipulate it. He's powerless. He looks like a powerless person, right? But he turns to a powerful God who's mighty to save, and he just asks in humility to receive mercy. So how would we summarize this contrast? For the Pharisee, the problem is out there. And what does that lead to? Pride. For the tax collector, the problem is in here, and what does that lead to? It leads to humility. So what do we find? How does Jesus sum this up? This is what's most shocking if you understand the original audience about how scandalous and hated a tax collector was. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Implication, Pharisee's not justified. 
You think he's righteous, but he's not. This tax collector, you think he's unrighteous. God has simply made him righteous, declared him righteous. Jesus confronts external assumptions about obedience and performance. Remember the initial issue, verse 9. Look at verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This is what's so scandalous. For them then, for us now, you can't save yourself. You cannot save yourself. You can't clean yourself up enough. Those who think they can earn God's favor by their perceived sense of moral achievement doesn't work that way. What is Jesus saying here? If we really think about it, he says, those people go to hell. Those people are, what does he say? Not justified. They're not righteous. Those who don't think they need mercy won't get any. Those who look to themselves for righteousness, those who look internal and not external, will find on the final day they're painfully lacking. They think they have eyes to see, but they're blind. So Jesus is saying to them then and us now, if you want to know that you're saved from the wrath of God that is to come on sin, if you want to know you have a heavenly Father who adopts you and provides you with an eternal inheritance, flee from any sense of self-righteousness and come to Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the news that we orbit around as a church, that when you humble yourself and cast yourself on his mercy expressed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection given as a gift for those who believe, you're saved. And then think about what the result might be. There's a vertical and a horizontal implication. Okay? What's the result? Well, when you get that, I mean, imagine if you're the tax collector and you just receive the news Mercy is yours. You didn't earn it. It's just a straight-up gift. How are you going to respond? How are you going to think? How are you going to act? Is that going to enable arrogance in your life? Of course not. It's going to enable humility. It's going to enable love. It's going to enable joy. Right? Jesus laid down his life for me and gave me the gift of eternal life apart from anything I've done. I just come to him, confess my neediness, and he grants what I need and gives me himself forever. I'm freed from the prison of just looking to myself all day long like the Pharisee. And released to the joy of gazing upon God that he would increase and that I would decrease. Like that changes how you relate to God. If you relate to God based on your deeds, 
then it's either going to be pride, like, God, you owe me, or despair, I haven't measured up. But grace says you're safe, you're free, you're chosen, you're loved. Just come to me in relationship because I love you. You're my son, you're my daughter. There's no reason to be prideful and there's no reason to be downcast. It's all taken care of. You're free. So it radically, this news, this gospel news radically changes how we relate to God. It's just said this in Luke, uh, Luke 7, 47. He who loves much, or he who's been forgiven much, loves much. That's another biblical way to say it. So when you understand what Jesus is saying in this parable, it radically changes your vertical relationship with God. How could we not love him for what he's done? How could we not want our lives to orbit around him for what he's done in, in history, time, space, and history? It really happened. He really died for your sins. He really rose from the dead. He really promises to return and make all things right. So we've seen how this good news of what Jesus has done for us changes how we relate to God. You feel that? But what about our horizontal relationships? Within the church, outside the church? And I think there's a clue in this text. Again, look back real quick. We're almost done to verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And here's the horizontal piece. And treated others with contempt. Right? When there's gospel breakdown, when there's a lack of understanding of how the gospel works and how I relate to God through the gospel, that has horizontal, uh, vertical relationship, uh, implications for my relationship with God. And right here in verse 9, it has horizontal relationships. How do I treat others? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. All right? So we're going to come back and look at gospel community next week and then third mission week three. And we're going to look at verse 9 and unpack it in much more biblical detail on how the gospel affects our horizontal relationships in what the Bible calls community. All right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that so helps us when you promise to use your Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts as we humble ourselves before you. May it be so. God, I pray that you would make this church someone that believes your word and wants to live in light of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.